Hey everyone, I'm Chris Hall and you're listening to the Downtime Podcast, where we delve deep into the gravity-based side of mountain biking. First up, I want to thank our supporting partners and that's Santa Cruz Bicycles and Seven Mesh who have a great offer for you. I've admired Seven Mesh clothing from afar for a while now, so when they got in touch wanting to support the podcast, I was really stoked. Seven Mesh is based in the mountains of British Columbia and was founded by three of the team from high-end outdoor clothing brand Arcteryx, including their CEO. As you'd expect from that combo of challenging terrain, extremely varied weather and incredible skills and experience in the outdoor clothing world, Seven Mesh are making truly high-performance clothing for mountain biking, gravel and road riding. They're working super hard to give us new options and better solutions to meet our needs. Needless to say, the performance is next level, but their gear is also built to last in the harshest of conditions and to keep you comfortable for as long as you're prepared to go. I've been lucky enough to try some of the range over the last couple of months and I can 100% vouch for the performance and quality of this stuff. The two standouts for me have been the Chilco Anorak and the Northwoods Windshell Jacket. For the Chilco Anorak, Seven Mesh have created their own high loft waffle fabric called WTV. It regulates heat like nothing else I've ever worn. I've used it with the same Elevate short sleeve base layer on rides from 4 to 12 degrees C without getting cold or having any issues with overheating. I've even kept it on in the car and still felt comfortable. It's one of the most versatile bits of riding clothing I have ever worn. The other piece which stood out is the Northwoods windshell. It's super light at just 126 grams and it packs down into its own storage pocket which has clever elastic straps so you can strap it to your bike rather than needing space in a pack. It's perfect for those rides where it's chilly at the start or the end to pop on while you're having lunch or enjoying the view at the top of the climbs and it's DWR treated so it's going to shrug off a light shower too. It's really an essential piece of kit for those autumn and spring rides. Whether you're wanting to try Seven Mesh for the first time or you're already hooked, they're offering downtime listeners a 20% discount using the code Downtime 7 Mesh 20. That's downtime followed by the number 7, then Mesh M E S H, and the number 20, all in capitals with no spaces. That's downtime 7 Mesh 20 over at 7mesh.com. Head over now and check them out. And what's even better is that they ship globally. So wherever you are, you can get your hands on some top quality riding gear. While you're here, don't forget to subscribe or follow the podcast so you never miss an episode. You can do that by hitting follow or subscribe in your podcast app now, or there's buttons to help you get it done over at downtimepodcast.com forward slash subscribe. Our merch has been fully refreshed and expanded, and it's available now over at downtimepodcast.com forward slash shop. It's all really good quality. It's ethically sourced, and it's delivered to you without any single-use plastics. And all the merch sales go directly to helping keep the podcast going. Also, Christmas is just around the corner and a subscription to Downtime EP is the perfect gift for the mountain biker in your life or something awesome to put on your very own Christmas list. EP takes the podcast into a printed format with writing and imagery from some of mountain biking's most talented creators. Put together by the wonderful team over at Misspent Summers, you can guarantee that EP is a lovely thing to own and to read. Head to downtimepodcast.com forward slash EP to get yours now. All the links you need for all of this stuff are in the show notes for this episode over on downtimepodcast.com. Don't forget, you can get in touch and give us a follow on Instagram and Facebook by heading to at Downtime Podcast. All right, today's episode is supported by Santa Cruz and I'm joined by their CEO, Joe Graney. We find out about Joe's background and how he worked his way up from joining Santa Cruz as a contract engineer to now being CEO of the entire business. Hear Joe talk about the importance of the syndicate to their marketing efforts and how they made carbon a legitimate option for gravity mountain biking. How does Joe feel engineering translates to running a business? We also chat about Santa Cruz's insane drive to develop bikes and how even COVID didn't slow that down. Why they build their bikes in-house and plenty more. 
So without further ado, here's Joe Graney. Joe Graney, welcome to the Downtime Podcast. Thanks for taking some time out of your, I'm sure, very hectic schedule to sit down for a chat. It's a pleasure. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Good stuff, man. Well, let's start where we start most of these episodes, and we'll just wind the clock back um, a little bit for you. Tell us a little bit briefly about how bikes came into your life in the first place. Uh, well, yeah, the first my first experience with bikes, I didn't learn to ride until I was eight or nine years old because I'd lived on a big hill and um, until I moved away from that hill um, I didn't really learn to ride so I I, uh, I learned to ride when I was nine my first bike was a Schwinn Predator BMX bike and then uh, that really became like my freedom machine I would use it to ride across town to go to soccer practice and used it to get to school and, and used it to escape, not need to be driven anywhere. Nice. But you drifted away from bikes for a little bit, I think, once uh, motorized vehicles were an option. Yeah, for sure. I mean, where I grew up in uh, suburban Boston, bikes weren't something adults rode really at the time, I suppose, at least not that I knew of. And so once I had a license, I started, uh, basically gave up bikes and it wasn't until the authorities took that license away from me that I rediscovered bicycles. <laughs> what, what did you do to deserve that pleasure? I got a motorcycle when I was 18, uh-huh. and I racked up five tickets in a matter of two weeks. And Yeah, and then because I was moving to another state, I thought, I don't have to pay these. I'll just move. But I realized later that the states spoke to each other ah. and it followed you across state lines. And so, but in the state that I moved to, I didn't have a car. So I just lived license free for several years yeah. and, uh, and used a bike as my main form of transportation. Nice. And engineering was always in the family. Is that right? No, not really. I suppose some part of engineering, but more from uh, the machining side. Okay. So we were, it's more technician and craftsmen uh-huh. um, that came from that, where you don't oftentimes don't know where the parts you make, what they go to, but you know how to make them. Okay. So it was more hands-on making parts. And mm-hmm. I think even even growing up in high school, uh, in grade school, making different things in, in the machine shop always came naturally to make the things. And yeah. I didn't really know what an engineer was until much later. Okay. And it was a combination of that. I guess, manufacturing experience and a pair of top-line cranks that kind of caught your imagination and brought you back. That's right. Into yeah. into the bike world in a bigger way. Yeah, I think I was just, I was a bit lost. Um, I dropped out of a few colleges. Um, and then I, yeah, discovered how, you know, nice bikes could, existed and they were like jewelry and, uh, they kind of ignited something for me that I wanted to be involved in it in some way. And that's what connected me back to thinking engineering would be something to pursue, mechanical engineering. Yeah, and that's what you went off to study at college then? Yeah, so I, I at that point I, I was I was living in Colorado. I moved uh, back to the East Coast and uh, went to college, got into undergrad in, uh, in Boston. Okay, and um, while you were there, did you... You intern at Trek. Is that was that your first bike industry experience? Yeah, the the college I went to um, had an, like an internship program, 
and I it it didn't involve track at the time, but I, I just called and harassed them, and, and they gave me a job in the fall. The school was very flexible when you did your internships, okay. so I did it in the fall in um, Wisconsin. Um, and I spent a few months out there, which was a you know, was an excellent learning opportunity. Uh huh. You you had a bit of trouble for voicing your criticism while you were there. I, you know, I mean, if there's anything consistent is, um, I'm a bit of a loud mouth without a filter. <laughs> I was then as well. Um, but they, they did right by me. I mean, for, I, I learned many lessons there. Uh-huh. Um, I, one of the lessons I learned was that at least at, at a bike company, it, at Trek at the time, it didn't sort of suit the ideals that I thought I had. I mean, okay. there's many people who are very idealistic about how bikes are used or designed or whatever the things are. And um, and that was one of the lessons I learned when I was there as well. Uh-huh. But I mean, I, when I was there, I designed my first bike. I got to fabricate my first bike. Um, you know, it's where I got inspired to live in a in an RV for many years. Um, so I, I, I low I owe many things to my time at Trek. Yeah, and at college you spent a bit of time making your own bike bits as well. You started getting your hands dirty on that side of things. Yeah, I kept trying to make some sort of clever doodads and, and sell them to, to bike shops. I, I wasn't very good on the commercial side of the business. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I often wasn't very good at the making the the bits either. I mean, I I made a number of different stems, many of them broke off uh, while I was using them. Um, but yeah, I was, I was always sort of tinkering, trying to f- figure out some little things. Yeah, so it was inevitable you were going to find your way into an engineering role in the bike industry at some point. But how do we get from finishing that college course to Santa Cruz Bikes? I, I got a job, another job, uh, not in the bike industry, but in design consulting. Okay. And I was designing mechanical products for a consulting firm. And I moved to San Francisco mm-hmm. because I wanted to be able to ride, you know, full year without, yeah. it was a harsh, harsh winter and no mountain biking in that sort of harsh winter. And um, I moved to San Francisco and then during an economic downturn, I was laid off. And during that time, I was introduced to um, an engineer, Dave Earl, who was mm-hmm. at Santa Cruz at the time. And through him, I met the owners, um, Rob Roskop and Hans Heim. And I just kept harassing Hans until he gave me a chance. And what did they bring you in as? What was your role when you started here? I was an engineer, as uh-huh. a design engineer. Yeah. Um, I was a consultant, like I just got paid by the hour okay. for the first six or seven months. Um, yeah, in my first year I designed was one of the Heckler revisions. The Heckler was coming back. Um, and then I was brought on full-time um, in 2002. Okay. And you were here when VPP became part of the Santa Cruz side of things. What what drove that decision? Because was that was quite a big move at the time, right? Yeah, the decision to acquire the patents and and develop the bikes happened just before I joined. Okay. And um, I think that was one of the reasons I was brought in to develop the bikes that were kind of more complicated or to yeah. use this system to make a series of bikes. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we, I mean, it turned out to be a great decision at the end of the day um, through many fits and starts. I mean, it's not a, it wasn't an easy thing to transition from single pivots to the linkage bikes in a yeah. small business. The company was 
quite small for the amount of engineering resources that was added. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do, I credit Hans and Rob for, you know, investing at the time into engineering and making things better. That that went on for many years. We, we typically would reinvest in tooling and new bikes over and over again. You know, I think the... Uh, that's the reason that the uh, the brand's been so successful over the yeah. years. You know, the, back in those days, I can remember many small competitors that we used to think were um, that were our true competition, and many of them either aren't around anymore or certainly haven't had the same success that Santa Cruz has had. Yeah, definitely. And there, there's there's been periods of hardship, I guess, throughout that time around the the financial crisis in 2008, Santa Cruz saw some layoffs, I think quite, quite a significant kind of percentage of the workforce, which was much smaller at that time. But you, you, you guys didn't back off. You almost upped it and were smashing out bikes like every three or four months coming off the back of that. And, and looking back now, do you think that was a big, like a significant kind of part of Santa Cruz's growth, that, that constant development like this year, I don't how many bikes have you launched this year? Yeah, I don't even know anymore. Maybe, <laughs> maybe you know, six or eight, depending uh-huh. on on how you count. Um, but a lot, yeah, for sure. This year was a was a very big year for the the product team. Um, it shows they didn't slow down in twenty 2020 twenty or twenty twenty one. You know, when when the lockdowns first came in in March of twenty twenty, the this factory here was shut down. Uh-huh which is terrifying. I mean, we don't buy bikes from the Far East to sell them. We assemble all the wheels and all the bikes here. Yeah. So if your factory is closed because everything's ordered to be closed, you have nothing left to sell. And that was a terrifying time. And we figured that out here. That's really what I was focused on. But later over the, the months, I found out that the product managers and the engineers had kind of set up a little delivery system. There would be some mechanics that would work at their workshops alone in the building. So they would come in and then deliveries would come in for UPS. They would get delivered and then they would send out a van to bring prototypes and samples and bikes that would make the rounds to all the engineers' houses to deliver them, like an internal delivery system so everybody could keep working on their stations at home. And even for test rides at the time, if it was something being test ridden, um, uh, it would often get delivered into my garage, like Kieran or, or someone else would know the garage code to my garage would just drop yeah. off a bike. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. Yeah. Yeah, serious commitment to, to development. And it, it feels like over the time as well, like Santa Cruz, to me anyway, was a big part of legitimizing carbon fiber as a material within the gravity side of Marrick biking. I think people were kind of nervous of it there was a lot of failures in the early days of carbon fiber in mountain biking and many people i think never thought it would be something we saw so much in the gravity side how did you approach that as a as a business because it's it's it was a significant engineering task i would imagine and you've gone kind of a, a bit of a different route to some other brands in in the way you handle carbon fiber as a business yeah it's a good question i mean it, it feels like such a long time ago now but um it certainly was where I spent a, a significant amount of my effort back then. Yeah, the market was shifting. Most of the carbon bikes on the market either weren't trusted because they were frail or they were just heavier. And so it just seemed like a, a bit of a gimmick. And 
when we decided to to get into it, we were going to release the first bike kind of just after when the economy really uh, hit, you know, the first really rocky ends, the end of 2008. Uh-huh. And But we were already invested in a lot of the development. So, yeah, I mean, we, a lot of it was just figuring it out, spending a lot of time at the factories with composites and a lot of it testing. There weren't good tests to tell you what was strong enough. Yeah. And from all sorts of very rudimentary things um, that we developed along the way that would be embarrassing to describe them now. Uh, but um, including stiffness as well. And I remember getting you know, probably several prototype revisions in and having samples come. And I'm not the greatest test rider, but, you know, having Josh, who's our product manager, and Josh would ride it and say, oh, this is, it's unrideable. Like, it's just so flexy. And, Uh you know, I would want it to be success. Like, I wanted to move forward so bad, but he's like, it's just not there. So then we'd have to develop stiffness tests that, were more reliable around what we were developing with carbon. And of course, once we made the first few bikes and we figured out the strength, we knew that riders didn't trust the material. Yeah. And so, you know, the only way you make them trust it is put it, make it clear it can take the biggest abuse there is, which was downhill racing. Yeah. So you send it, put it under the syndicate and away you go. Yeah, yeah, I think it was the syndicate and I think maybe it was 2010 in Maribor when Greg won Maribor first uh-huh. first um, race of the season on, on the Carbon V10. Yeah, cool. Well, it's worked for sure. And you've gone your own route and you're unique, I think, in having your own factory for carbon fiber um, and a separate factory for, for carbon fiber wheels as well, I think. That's right, isn't it? We are partners in the carbon frame factory that okay. we make it in. So yeah. we started that together uh-huh. with um, with some other people. And carbon wheels, we're not the owners of. We partnered with people, but they but it was an independent company. They split off and they built a separate carbon factory okay. to basically just make our wheels and some existing stuff that they had. Yeah. And what drove you to do that? Because most carbon stuff within the industry comes out of very few factories and there's a lot of sharing of those factories between brands. What drove you to take what ultimately, I guess, must have been a more expensive and time-consuming route? There must be some some strong reason in there. It, it, it's just simply to make a better quality product. Um, if If somebody's making frames, they're quite right and somebody else is buying them. They're quite right to believe this is as good as they need to be. And people are very reluctant to change the way that they behave or what they make if it is an operating business. Uh And we come in and people kind of doubt what um, our requirements would be and so forth, and and that's fine. And if that relationship doesn't work out, then a better situation is to align with people that understand that we're the bike guys mm-hmm. um, and they do the manufacturing and we form a mutual trust that we know what we're looking for from the bike side. Yeah, We work together with them to make it manufacturable and it's not about just driving costs down to the lowest possible level to sell bikes no matter whether they 
perform well or are durable. Yeah. You know, and, and it's, it's, it's not just more time consuming and takes more effort to set up, but it often costs more to make the products that come out the other side of that. Yeah. Yeah. But worth it. I, I mean, I, I think it is. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So how do we get then from Joe Graney, engineer, bike designer, to Joe Graney, CEO of Santa Cruz Bikes? Talk us through that kind of journey, process, whatever you want to call it. Um, I don't want to speak too much for the, the former owners of the business, but, uh, you know, in, in short, the owners were looking to sell the company. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was here and helped develop a plan for to help them sell the company, like a business plan to sell the company around. Apparently, nobody else was <laughs> suitable <laughs> to <laughs> execute that plan. But I, I was kind of put out as the front man in the sale. Okay. And so I met the, the buyers, which was upon holding. Uh-huh. And... Um, and the the people from Pond are very personal. Um, it's a family-owned company, and Fanya Pond came to visit us. So you meet the owner and you meet the CEO, and um, it's a small family business, really, yeah. there. Um, and the people at the top have put a lot of – they put a lot of trust into individuals. Uh-huh. And so uh, after the acquisition, they – um, have kept me in the CEO since. Yeah. What coming into that role? How did you feel about that? Because it's a big leap. It's a very different thing. You, I mean, I, I get the feeling you were more than an engineer here. Anyway, you obviously you'd been here a long time. You know the business very well. What What did you think coming in? Like, did you feel you had gaps in your skill set? Did you feel that engineering set you up well for it? Like, what what were you expecting? I guess. Going okay, I mean, those are those are fair questions. Yeah, because it it wasn't simple. It wasn't easy. And um, you know, several years before that as well, um, I'd had to identify for myself whether or not I had that ambition and if I was going to work at it. Uh-huh. And I have a good friend. His name's Matt O'Rourke, um, who is is uh, who is a, a great coach to me. Um, held the mirror up and showed me some of my weaknesses, uh-huh. um, helped me build, um, you know, different types of, of uh, plans and really both to convince myself and build the confidence, but yeah. also create a plan for what we could do with the business uh-huh. um, that was, was more holistic, something that I, I wasn't aware of or couldn't have done myself at the time. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think I had to, understand that that's what I wanted and then sort of buckle down and do quite a bit of work mm-hmm. um, to make it happen. And then when I got the opportunity, really doubled the effort down and did even more work to try to make sure that a lot of these plans that are there actually came to fruition. I had many, many years of learning things that I knew nothing about. Yeah. Do you feel you're still learning? Every day, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. I my My role in it is very different than it was maybe five years ago where I was much more in the weeds. Okay. Um, and it's just, it's too, too many things now to like go diving into. So, mm-hmm. you know, um, now I'd say it's more trying to help others understand how to prioritize or what they need to work on or 
how to work with different people or, you know, lay the path out for what I think is what what I can see. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of engineering is in the detail. So you have that background of, of digging and exploring and, and getting into the detail of stuff. Have you found it hard to kind of pull away from that and kind of look at things from a higher level and to kind of stay out of the the nitty gritty stuff because there's obviously a passion there for that. Yeah, I mean, I think if engineering, engineering is kind of teaching problem solving. Yeah. And so that the problem solving, and I'm pretty curious, I'm interested in a lot of different problems. It doesn't have to just be like the bike frame. Mm -hmm. I mean, many years when you were describing the carbon bikes that we came up with, most of the design work wasn't done by me at the time. Um, I, I found making the factory and designing those tests and kind of making sure we we're making the right bikes was more interesting uh -huh. or suited my skill set better, I suppose. Um, and there were people that were much better at design work than I. And yeah, I mean, I think then it was about looking at a bike company that was a certain size and trying to engineer it to be something better. Okay. Um, and now it's a, you know, a few different companies and it's different. Um, this, the dynamics are different. So it's not necessarily about like diving into the details. It's actually, you know, looking at the bigger picture. Um, cause a lot of people who are in the details also, you can't tell what the whole thing looks like. Yeah. yeah. And so now trying to make sure that, uh, all of it comes together. So you're kind of using that engineering problem solving experience just in different areas at a different scale, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that trying to design an amazing mountain bike company. It's a pretty cool project. Yeah, it yeah. really is. And how's it going, right? You've seen some insane growth in was it 20 plus years you've been here now? Yeah, 20 something years. Yeah. How, how has it changed? What, what's the scale then versus now? And what have been the biggest changes that you've seen through that time? I mean, it's, it's, it was pretty small, like a couple of garage doors when I first joined. And, and now it's quite a bit bigger. I mean, there's more people and there's, you know, there's more bikes sold and more wheels built and the whole bit. Um, yeah, I, I think, I mean, fundamentally what a lot of, maybe from the outside people don't understand is there's a lot of the same people that are here as well and the same ethos is here. I mean, yeah. that's a lot of what I try to make sure stays through is the same ethos. Um, you know, I think certainly more recently, uh, you know, see more pushback from people about maybe the, the price of bikes, you know, there's a lot of, of yeah. they're so expensive. We're really like, we tend to promote our most expensive bikes because th they are the nicest, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, a lot of people buy expensive bikes from the brand because they are nice. Um, they are very nice bicycles. Um, but a lot of the things that make the bikes cost more are, I think the same decisions that anyone given their ability to make the decisions along the way that added that expense that a mountain biker would make okay. for themselves. Yeah. They can't see how it adds up to it. I can understand. You look at another thing and it's maybe it's less expensive, but then you say, well, it, it doesn't support local retailers, which you may or may not care about that, but I think it's pretty important because uh -huh. when your bike breaks... It's 
a local shop is a great place to go yeah. to get it fixed. Uh, and you can say, I can still bring my online ordered bike to the bike shop, which you can. But if that bike shop failed to exist, you wouldn't be able to bring it there too much. Very true. Um, and also many things that we make around product design decisions are to make it high quality. I mean, it, it's the tagline of the company, but it's something we talk about all the time. That's like the quality of the bike itself is what we're concerned about. Mm -hmm. So there's not a lot of fad chasing and flash in the pan things. We stick with things that we know that work. And sometimes it's a bit more expensive um, or maybe a little off trend or something like that. But I think it's that that consistency is what we're about. Yeah. What about the less sort of maybe tangible aspects of the company? Like I feel my experience of seeing Santa Cruz from the outside, I feel like the brand, the company, whatever you want to call it, has quite, it has a good sense of humor. It's quite lighthearted in the way that it approaches things. I, well, first off, I guess, would you agree with that? And how do you kind of maintain something like that in a company that's growing as quickly as this is? Like the, the message and the atmosphere always seems pretty consistent, which is, is hard in a, a big brand, right? Yes, there's more people, you know, speaking for the company or talking for the company. Um, but there's many people that have been here for a long time. I think that helps. Um, but also just making sure that everybody is on the same page with what the values of the organization are and what we care about. I mean, I, I think I can come off as pretty intense for a lot of people, including people at work um, here as well from the outside. But I mean, the tagline, our sort of internal mission statement is make great bikes and have fun doing it. And it's like, it's as simple as that. Yeah. You know, if you're not having fun, somebody should come in and intervene. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm with you. And, and the whole mission is about making great bikes. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, I mean... I, I'm glad it comes out. It, and it seems to cut through here as well. I've been on the tour around today and met loads of people across all aspects of the business. And it, it does, yeah, it does seem to cut through. There's that atmosphere everywhere. And and one of the, I guess, the kind of elements of that fun side of the brand um, and also a very, very important part of the brand, I would say, looking from the outside in, on the growth side is the syndicate, which has been huge, I think, over recent years, Um I think especially that era of Greg, Steve and Josh was an incredible thing for Santa Cruz. And, it, uh, and, and the, in the last year, again, I think that group seems to be really gelling and, and feels like an incredible thing. How, how, how important has Syndicate been for you? I mean, you're right with that, that era. Um, the Steve, Greg, Josh era, really things were firing on all cylinders. That was the same era as all the carbon bikes coming up. Yeah. Right. It was like, that was a real inflection point for, for the company. Um, that was also when we did the partnership with Envy Composites and we were racing carbon wheels then. And yeah, things were, things were firing then. It was, it was a very successful time and a lot of things went right. Um, I'd say that like in the early 2000s, my first half of my time at Santa Cruz, I didn't really get the race team all that much. Okay. Um, it seemed like a lot of attention and 
resources went to to things that I didn't wasn't all that into. I thought downhill bikes were cool, but I, I didn't understand the race scene all that much. Okay, um, my the first. Uh, the first pro downhill race I ever went to is in 09. Roscop invited me and he'd invited me in the spring or something. It wasn't until, you know, the late summer or early fall that the race was. And I was like, oh, he's still going to this thing. And I was like, I can't believe I'm flying all the way to Australia for a race. <laughs> Um, and that was the 09 World Champs that PD won. Yeah, and, special. Yeah, and, and to be there for that moment and to see kind of how much it meant not just for Steve, but for so many other people. I think that was definitely a, that was a, a, a time that that changed. I'd, I'd never witnessed it live. I'd never seen it myself yeah. and, and how much it went. And, and after that, I think the team and certainly the engineering department at Santa Cruz had a you know different relationship. Uh-huh. And good morale internally as well, I would imagine, when the team's firing and doing work. Must feel good for the staff here to see that. Yeah, it's great. I mean, everybody, even on on the production floor, people know when what a lot of people know about what the racing is, the racing rumors, and and uh, and yeah. So I mean, it's it's amazing to win. Yeah, nice. In comparison, though, you, as a brand, you don't invest as heavily in the enduro side of things. Do you still feel that downhill is kind of, I guess, the place to sell all types of mountain bike? And do you ever see that changing? Yeah, I'm not sure if the racing is where you sell all types of mountain bikes, but it certainly, I think it's it builds brand credibility yeah. that that you're you're in that thing. I I think downhill is it's an exciting sport to watch. Like most sports, it's better on TV than when you're there live. You actually want to pay attention to it. Yeah, um, and I think it's quite good. And I think enduro is a very difficult sport to watch. It's a good participant um, sport, you know? Uh Um, And I think it's great that it exists and that there's so many people that participate in doing it, but I find it not as compelling to kind of follow the the racing kind of by the different stages. It's, it's, it's harder. And I think, I mean, it's not just for the enduro side. Enduro is a lot like world rally, which, uh, you know, it's impressive, but it's difficult to follow. Yeah. Um, unless you see summaries or something, it's we're watching the Formula One. It's an easier yeah. S- format. Yeah, definitely. It, can you see that change in there? Do you think we'll ever see enduro being on the scale of downhill from like an investment perspective and a pit perspective? Uh, anything could happen. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, anything could happen. But I, th- I, I th- just think the format of a four minute downhill racing there's nothing quite like it is there it's pretty exciting isn't it yeah i mean if you look at other sports nothing with those two different formats that exist uh, quite get it i mean it's certainly possible i mean considering you know something like grand tours which can be thrilling over a three-week period Mm -hmm. it can be done but there's are scales quite far away from anything in mountain biking yeah yeah, there's a lot of investment to make that work for sure. Interesting. All right, something slightly different. I feel like in your kind of transition from engineer to CEO, you've come from a place where your motivation was to make products that kind of last a lifetime. And I think that's something that you've set out to do here across the whole range of bikes. 
to a potentially sort of conflicting motivation to sell as many bikes as possible, right? Because that's what the business is here to do. And I'm interested to get your thoughts on that. Like, how do you rationalize that balance between creating great bikes that last, but still having customers wanting to buy them? Like, how do you how do you balance those two aspects? It's a good good question. I I never think of my job is to sell as many bikes as possible. How would you describe your your job? Well, I, I need to run a successful brand because okay. there's investors behind the brand who want a return on mm -hmm. their investment. We have very benevolent investors. And so they don't, um, they're not trying to squeeze every last dollar out of the brand for the next couple of years and exploit uh -huh. it. Okay. They're not an exploitative uh, ownership. They respect the power of the brand yeah. And Fanya has directly told me that she wants to ensure that this is something special that is handed on to her children. Nice. And so the protection of the brand, I find probably one of my more pressing needs than okay. to sell more bikes. Yeah. I think if people think Santa Cruz sold out because we sell expensive bikes only, it's much easier to sell more bikes when you sell cheap ones. <laughs> yeah, true. Um, so we, we stay on a quality scale that meets what the values of the brand are. Uh -huh. And to sell more bikes is very, very simple. Uh, to, to stay selling the highest quality bikes is very, very difficult. Yeah. I mean, that. so it's certainly not an, an easy path that we've taken. And it's not just because higher selling bikes are they're, they're harder to sell, they're harder to develop. That's why very few companies are in the space we're in. Yeah. No one else builds their own bicycles or builds their own wheels. Yeah, it's quite, quite, it was a surprise for me. I didn't realize that you still built everything here. That's right. Yeah. Because that's the way that we can get the best result on uh -huh. quality yeah and those things they do cost money they are quite difficult um rather than outsourcing it all to third-party suppliers yeah. where you don't have a good grip what you can do in that case is usually lower prices or lower your overhead and if you cut out those things um you lower your risk as a business mm -hmm. um but i don't think you get the best output yeah but something that I guess to some extent can be, it's less tangible to customers, right? Customers, when you don't have a problem as a customer, you don't realize that you could have had a problem, if that makes mm -hmm. sense, if you bought a lower quality product. It's even, one of those things. Even when you have a problem, it's very difficult for people to attribute that to why they have the problem. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So they think, well, I, I bought uh, this bike, whatever brand or whatever price, and I got it and it's fucked up and would that have happened with any bike you don't know yeah, yeah. Um, when you're a customer buying your, your bike for the first point our goal is to avoid most of those things and to provide the best experience people can have we think that's the best way to treat customers it's the best way to have people appreciate mountain biking yeah it's the best thing overall um, and that's the way we approach it um, 
but for cust for a lot of end consumers, they're making a decision on the on the price point itself. Yes. And if it's 300 bucks cheaper, they think it's the same thing because mm -hmm. if it has the same head tube angle, you know, and the same rear derailleur hung out and all the rest of it, the rest is, is all that. And, you know, that's one type of consumer behavior. We can try to tell people about what we do that is special. We can try to back it up. But um, at the end, people make their decisions and that's theirs to make. Yeah. Yeah, it's a tricky. It's a tricky one to communicate. I guess quality is often unseen until there's a problem. So yeah, it's a challenging one. But it was cool to see it all being put together here today. It was nice to nice to still see that happening. Well, the the quality of the bike itself is one aspect, but I, I look at quality more holistically. So you see, you you come here and you have a quality experience. We have a bike factory with a bunch of stoked people at the bottom of a trail system. Yeah. that's a good quality uh, of, of life and experience you can have here. You meet a lot of great people that work here that you'd want to hang out with. Um, and yeah. it's not just a work relationship. That's about quality as well. Yeah. And, you know, and doing good things with what, I mean, many people think that corporate entities are just in it for to turn out a buck, but you can probably have a good result and, and add some good to the world as well, which is being a quality company, providing a good experience for employees. Uh, there's a lot of different ways that quality is used inside the company besides just the bikes that we make. Yeah. Let's talk about one of the other things that you're doing kind of outside of the, the brand itself then, because we're here this week for some pay dirt, pay dirt related activities, which I think hopefully most listeners will be familiar with pay dirt, but in case they're not briefly, Give us a bit of an overview. What is Paydirt and how did it come to exist? It's basically just a label we stuck on a program. We said we'll give away a million dollars over the next three years to trail advocates and people who increase access to riding what, how, in whatever form that might be. Building new trails, building access, giving bikes away, making cycling more accessible for people. And I don't know, three years ago or so, we we said we'd we'd commit to a three-year, one million dollar pledge on it internally, and um, yeah, and so we've been executing on that. How's that been from your perspective to to see that and to have you know a number of the people here this week that have been recipients of that and been able to do good work with it? Yeah, it's incredible, really. Um, I mean, the reason we called it pay dirt is rather than, I don't know, Santa Cruz gives or whatever other people might t put the put the thing on. So it had a different name, so it didn't feel like we were just trying to burnish the brand with this thing. Yeah. Um, and it kind of had their own a different banner. And that, you know, the idea was maybe it could stand alone as a, as its own sort of initiative one day. Um, but yeah, to see so many people from around the world approaching things in all these different ways, from bikes for refugees to inner city kids to, I don't know, it's like people from Jersey, like actual Jersey in England and then New Jersey in the U.S. Um, yeah, it's incredible to see like how many people it's touched. Um, yeah, it, it it's it's really cool. Like it doesn't. It's a lot of people starved for some support. Mm -hmm. 
And that support can come with cash. It can come with recognition. It can come with giving people a, a bit of a spotlight on what they're building so that people will show up there and ride there. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I, I don't know. It's one of the things I'm most proud of, I suppose. Yeah, it's cool. How do you think we're doing as an industry on that? Like, there are a few brands running initiatives along the sim same lines, I guess, but are we, are we moving the needle enough? I, uh, no. No, I'd say most landowners, like land use advocates, national forest rangers and so forth, they, the, the regular thing is they say, it's like, where is the industry in this? Uh -huh. The bike industry is super fragmented. People don't work together. Uh, we have no real organized lobbying in the U.S. besides people for bikes, and there's many people who don't participate in that. And there's far too much on their plate that they could do. And so I think as an industry, we have a lot of work to do. And I think as end consumers, there's so much bitching about things that people, mountain bikers get in their own way about it. And I understand people can do that. Mountain bikers that, you know what every mountain biker hates is other mountain bikers. <laughs> <laughs> Go on, tell me more. <laughs> well, there's never a mountain biker that would say, I want to get more bikers on trails. Yeah, people right? are protected. Yeah, well, yeah, it, yeah. so you see, it's more people on trails is not good for a mountain biker. So I completely understand how mountain bikers themselves are like, I don't want more mountain bikers on trails. Yeah. And, and so with that sort of core protectionism at it, and so then, of course, if you build a flow trail or an accessible trail, it's like, ah, oh, this is bullshit, bullshit trails. And I understand, but it, it, I'm not, I understand how it comes into play. Yeah. Because I hate when people are on trails too. <laughs> I fucking hate them. Yeah, yeah. I hate people. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, it, I also want more trails to be built. And I also want some of the illegal um, stuff that I love riding to turn legal. Yeah. And yeah. I'd also like there to be some trails for my kids. I'd like there to be some trails I could go ride with my kids now. And I'd love for there to be trails that don't get shut down by them getting built over, or, you know, or banned or something Yeah. when they're a bit older. So maybe this is just old guy, me talking that I, I feel some responsibility to leave things a little better for the next generation. Yeah. Well, it's definitely a shift to think when you have kids is that that's, for me, that's changed how I think about stuff. Yeah. I mean, there's no such thing as a 25 year old mountain biker who wants anybody else riding. <laughs> it's like, it's you and your buddies and that's it. Yeah. And it's like, that's okay. I mean, I think that's a fine thing for those people. I think as they get older, maybe there can be, or, or they, their mind shift changes. Mm -hmm they could participate in some of the stuff, but also maybe the products that are fueling those young guys, those could be used to do better work too. Yeah. So I think that's where the industry is. Let's make the cheapest bikes we can to sell to these people. We don't give anything back. We'll stay in a tax haven. We'll sell direct to consumer. Mm -hmm. So we avoid anyone local on the ground and we sell the cheapest stuff that we can. So there's low risk on it. And then there's no return into kind of helping build any of that infrastructure. I, yeah. I don't respect that way of doing business. Right. I know it's the cheapest way to bring a product to market. Fair comment.
we need to start wrapping up, man, because we've got to be somewhere else in a few minutes. We have four questions we normally wrap up with. I'm going to pick two of them for you. The first one is, if you could wind back the clock and sit down with yourself age 16, what advice would you give him? Jesus, learn to wheelie. I'm I'm similar. <laughs> <laughs> Occasionally it goes well and I blow my own mind and wheelie for a, a few meters, but I've never, I've never stuck at it. Yeah, exactly. I felt like that's that's what I would tell myself. There we go. There's still time, Joe. Still time. <laughs> and the second one of these questions, what do you do every day that you feel benefits you? I ride my bike almost, every day? almost every day. Good effort. Yeah. I mean, if I don't, I, it doesn't benefit me. So the days that I do ride my bike, I mean, I I've, I have the benefit of having short loops on amazing trails, mm -hmm. right from my driveway, right from my office. And that is the most consistent thing I do, actually. Like, nice. That is my gym and my therapist and my church all rolled into one. Amen to that. What's your chosen ride? What gets the most use from your garage? Assume you have more than one Santa Cruz product. Oh, for a ride. Oh, I mean, but Tallboy's most consistent. Okay. I think. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Interesting. Good for the trails around here. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of uh, you know an easy climber, and yeah. you can ride everything. Maybe not as quick, or at least the trails that I ride, that uh -huh. they can do all of it. But I've got a you know Tallboy and Tallboy and New Nomad kind of are the the bookends in yeah. the garage like it good stuff man well it's been a real pleasure sitting down and chatting if people want to find out a bit more where's the best place from there santacruzbicycles.com you got it santacruzbicycles.com nice plug nice good to stuff. meet you chris that's a pleasure man out. hopefully we can sit down and uh, update this chat at some point in the future sounds great awesome cheers jay cheers all right that's it for this episode with joe i really hope you've enjoyed it a massive thanks to Santa Cruz for supporting this episode. You can check out all that they have to offer over at santacruzbicycles.com. Also, a massive thanks to Sevenmesh. If you're in the market for some amazing quality riding kit, then whether you're wanting to try Sevenmesh for the first time or are already hooked, they're offering downtime listeners a 20% discount using the code DOWNTIME7MESH20. That's downtime, followed by the number 7, then M-E-S-H, and the number 20, all in capitals with no spaces. So that's downtime7mesh20 over at 7mesh.com. Head over now and check them out. And what's even better is that they ship globally, so wherever you are, you can get your hands on some top quality riding gear. All right, here's a few other links that might be useful to you too. Downtimepodcast.com forward slash subscribe so you never miss an episode. Forward slash shop to support the show by getting yourself some brand new merch and forward slash EP if you want to get your hands on copies of our lovely print project Downtime EP. As always, spread the word, tell your rider mates and make sure as many people as possible are listening. That's it for today. We'll have another awesome episode coming up really soon. But until next time, get out and ride.